Coach Wiley, we're back for another week here of talking some ball, and I'm always excited about the guests that you connect us with, and certainly we're excited to talk to Coach Sabo today. So, Coach, welcome back for another week here at Talking Ball. Uh, this is one of the best parts of my week, The guys that we bring in that have tremendous teaching skills and tremendous experience in the game, and everybody can learn something from what they talk about. And they try to promote the sport and make the younger coaches better coaches, and the older coaches may pick up some of the stuff that they didn't know or just reinforces stuff that they already knew, learn something entirely different and a different way to look at it. And so this is always fun to hear information. The gentleman we have on today, the coach we have on today, Steve Zabo, he has a wealth of information and experience. Coach Zabo, we are excited to have you here today, and I'll get some things going here. So first of all, thank you for taking the time, Coach. Well, hey, listen, I'm always happy to talk about football. Bob and I have shared a lot through the years. It was amazing that our friendship lasted all this time, you know, because we were here at Colorado State together in 1989. That's a long time ago. But through all these years, we've maintained contact and shared ideas. And it's just that I think we both really care about the game. And so it's always been a topic for us. Coach, I want to go back to the beginning of your career. You played at the U.S. Naval Academy, played with Roger Staubach, who obviously is a notable from the Naval Academy. And then from there, went on to serve in the military, went to Vietnam. And then when you came back from Vietnam in 1969, started your football coaching career at Johns Hopkins. So for you, what was it that bridge the gap there that really was the start for you to get into coaching after you were in the military? I can't explain it because it had to be almost accidental. I never intended to coach. When I left the academy, they asked me to stay back and help coach the plebe team, and I, I turned it down because I could go to Quantico and play with the Quantico Marines, which I much preferred. So I had no thought about coaching. You know, because when I was playing, I couldn't stand being out of the game and standing on the sideline. I could never figure out why anybody would like to coach. But when I got to Hopkins, I was there on a fellowship. I always had good grades, so I was studying for my Ph.D. in applied math. But I coached football and lacrosse both because I had played lacrosse at the academy, too. But I don't know, something happened. I, I really liked helping kids be better players. I could only... Think about myself as a kid. When you're young and you're playing, you have all these dreams about playing at higher levels. You know, and the kids at Hopkins, that's Division Three. I mean, they weren't very good football players, but they wanted to play. And it, it was, I found it unbelievably fulfilling and enjoyable to help these kids. And so I, I made the decision after uh, the completion of one year at Hopkins I sought out a, a graduate assistantship in college to continue to work on my degree, but also to, you know, let's really see what this coaching is about. I ended up very luckily going to the University of Toledo as a GA, but, you know, I was very fortunate. I got there in the summer and one of the guys on the staff quit in the summer. So the head coach, a guy named Frank Waterberg, called me in made me the head freshman coach because freshmen weren't eligible back then. And so here I was as the head freshman coach at Toledo, and I really only had 
one year of experience coaching at Hopkins, and I guarantee you, I didn't know anything at that point. So that's how it started. And then once it just seemed like once I got into it, you know, one thing led to another, to another, to another, and you just keep going. Next thing you know, you turn around, you've been in it 10 years. And really, all of us in the beginning, you 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 want to be a head coach at some big university. That's what you, you know, want to aspire to be. I had some chances, but nonetheless, it's been a, it was a fabulous journey. Coach, when you look at how you learned the game, much different than and how it's done today. Guys who are getting into the game today have all this information that's very accessible. You know, you don't have to go sit in a dark room somewhere to watch film. You know, pull it up on your phone and get it from almost anywhere right now. Yeah. But there was still, I think, a lot about how we learned the game before all those things. When you look back at that, what aspects of your, your coaching education are really still applicable and probably helpful to a young coach today? Speaking to young guys at clinics and, you know, here even in Fort Collins in the immediate area, talk to the, talking to high school coaches, what I did in the beginning is I contacted people and I asked questions. I mean, that's how I accumulated knowledge. Back when I, in the beginning, it, film was not accessible. The only thing we had was 16 millimeter and I mean, you weren't going to get a hold of any of that unless you had an exchange at the university you worked at. It was unheard of that people would just send you 16 millimeter film to do research on it. You know what I mean? So the film study stuff was not really accessible, but you could contact guys and they, and they would talk football with you, you know, and going to clinics or conventions and meeting other coaches you had the opportunity to share ideas, you know, like a contrast to today with the internet and cell phones and whatnot. Back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when you'd go to the coaches convention, everybody in the lobby was writing stuff on paper. You know what I mean? That's all people did. Now I went to a convention, but it was, (laughs) that was like 10 years ago. The only thing you see in a lot of your guys on cell phones, nobody's talking to each other or writing down things or exchanging ideas. I guess that's kind of gone by the wayside, but accumulation of the knowledge of about the game came, you know, you, you end up collecting ideas from people and then you associate what you believe in to some of those ideas and you may craft them a little bit to what, you have experienced on the field when you apply that stuff. But that, I mean, I have to say that's how I acquired it. I basically did the same thing. We had a, I mean, to get 16 millimeter film, which Steve was talking about, it was the only thing that you could have back then. I mean, in high schools, when you went to recruit in the high schools, they would, they don't let the film out of the high school. Right. You know, the, the, the film stays in the high school and you had to sit there for hours looking at, 16 millimeter film because you can't leave the school with it. We'd always try to get together at one school that was going to share where this, you know, like I, I would go to Camp McKinley High School. Tom McDaniels was the head football coach there. Josh's dad, and Josh was only like nine years old at the time. But I would be there with Saban, would be in there, Jimmy Bowman would be in there, Bobby Wigiseski would be in there. 
you know, we, we used to sit down on Friday afternoons and, and, and watch all the film from the area schools. And then Tom would tell us where the players were. There's no, there's a guy here, there's nobody here. And he would save us a lot of footwork. And then you're getting the ideas and taking stuff home to study it more in depth. He didn't get any of that stuff. That was tough to come by. So this question is for, for really for both of you. And looking at that, and, and certainly I was a part of that too. I mean, I was not this, the 16 millimeter stuff, but certainly with my dad as a high school coach, I'm very familiar with that. Looking at that situation, as you mentioned it, Coach Wiley, you know, you're sitting in the room with those guys. So I think, uh, you know, you contrast that to the picture that Coach Sabo painted of guys in the lobby at the AFC just looking at their phones. I think what maybe is is lost in this is you had the ability to sit down with those guys, share ideas, think things through, and really learn more about some of the thought processes and even the teaching behind that stuff rather than just here's what's happening on film. Do you think, you know, maybe at least right now as we've made this transition, is that something you think maybe is, is lost a little bit? in coaching education? And Bob and I talk about this often. What's happened now, at least the contact I have had with some of the young coaches in college football in the NFL, I mean, they can recite to you, I mean, on the defensive side of the ball, for instance, how to play quarters coverage. But the problem is they don't know where it came from, why it became what it was, and how do you adjust it when you don't have the personnel? They don't have any answers. And I think that's what's been lost, the, the theory part of how all this stuff came about. I'm sure Bob could speak to the, the revolution, if you would call it that, in offensive line technique, you know, and, and more use of the hands. That stuff, you, you have to understand where it came from and why it happened in order to deal with the players, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to go to the X and O part now. What I don't see a lot of is the ability of coaches to make adjustments to systems to fit their personnel. Everybody wants to talk about the spread offense in high school. whoop de do okay? Well, what do you do if you don't have a quarterback that can run? What do you do if you don't have any kind of receivers with speed? What do you do if you don't have a very good offensive line? I mean, those are the, the things that you have to understand because the true art of coaching, you take the cards that you're dealt and you do the best you can with them. That's coaching. We have a saying, all of us do that. You know, you got great players, you're a great coach. You got bad players, you're a bad coach. But the really good ones can take whatever they have dealt to them and make it play the best get the best performance out of it. And that's coaching. I don't know if we see enough of that today. I think we see more people teaching schemes than they're actually teaching how to play the offense or how to play the defense. What is the philosophy and the theory behind it, how you play it? And Steve's exactly right. The adjustment, you get young guys that come up and they'll wow you on the on the, on the blackboard, the chalkboard, or the whiteboards nowadays. And, and they have all the stuff and they can recite it inside and out in like a Bible. But come game day on Sunday afternoons, when it's not like that and they change the back end or they change the front or they, they're running these new blitzes at you that you hadn't seen before, they really struggle to make the adjustments with that stuff. Yeah, when I look at, you know, you go back to 
coaching education, like you said, 30, 40 years ago, longer than that. There was a lot that was just, it was written in the books. There, the film wasn't there, right? Today we're, we're video driven in our society in general, right? Even our books are, are digital now. But when I read some of these books, and you know, just looking across my shelf right now, George Allen, How to Train the Quarterback, Newt Rockney, just simply entitled Coaching, Bear Bryant's book here, Homer Smith. I mean, all these guys, when you read those books, you, you could strip the, the scheme out of what they're saying. And holy cow, is there good coaching and detail going on about how to coach the game? And then a lot of those guys would trace, you know, especially like Homer Smith was a historian in, in like, here's why this was developed and, and where this came out of and understanding those things. Like you said, the theory behind things and how they develop, I think a lot of times helps you solve some of the, the problems as you move forward with that. I mean, eventually you're going to take whatever you learn and make it your own in some way because it has to fit to your personnel. It has to fit you to your situation. But that part of it, when you miss that and you don't have the a lot of the detail behind it, I do think it sometimes becomes difficult to evolve yourself as a coach. Well, Bruce used to tell us, I don't hire anybody that has a line to feel. He wanted you to come up through the profession from the ground roots to learn what it's like to be a football coach and, and put the lines down on the field from Pop Warner or practice in junior high school, high school, where he was your true coach in the sense of how he learned the game. And I think that's what Steve is alluding to, that, that part there. Steve was very fortunate to work, and I was very fortunate to work with Coach Bruce. Steve longer than me. But he, he was truly loved the game from the ground up not just what they see today. I mean, now there's certain things that we do, you know, with the video, which I think is good. And there's certain things I think it gives you too much, too much information for it. I mean, like if you wanted to go see a play in 16 millimeter film and it's the 32nd play of the game, well, you got to play through 31 plays to get to that play and then cut it out and so on, however you wanted to do it. Right now you just click on 32 and it comes up in seconds, you know, so there's good things and there's bad things. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned Daryl Bruce there, Coach, and Coach Zabel, you've been really able to work with some guys who, you know, a Hall of Famer like Lloyd Carr, Super Bowl champions, you know, Earl Bruce. And, and let's start with Earl, but looking at all of these guys, I uh, want to bring up a few here, Coach. What's one memorable idea um, that you learned from each of these guys that really helped you as a coach and like I said, we'll start with Earl Bruce. What's something you really remember that Earl used to teach or you learned from Earl that really helped you as a coach? Well, one of the things that Earl was, I thought, just absolutely terrific at was his empathy for the staff. I mean, he constantly wanted to know about, you know, what he could do for the staff. And the other thing about Earl was in, in discussing game plans, for instance, if you had an idea, I mean, he was going to come at you hard to try and be the devil's advocate. You know what I mean? And if you didn't stick to your guns, he knew you were, you know, that was some pie in the sky deal. I think you have to have conviction about things that you say. Tailoring a game plan is is not an easy situation when you are, you're talking about you might be in a room with four or five other guys who certainly are not the same as you and have opinions 
Well, somehow those opinions got to end up being one thing. Somebody's got to give and somebody's got to take. I thought Earl was really good at making sure that if you wanted to do something, that you had a strong conviction and a reason why you wanted to do that or why it would fit our football team. What was the merit of it? The way he treated the coaches, I never worked for anybody that was as a good a person as Earl was. Now, he was cantankerous when he had the, the head coach hat on, you know, in the football building. <laughs> I believe that he believed that was the right way to do things. You know, and again, he was a disciple of Woody, so there were certain things about him that were much like Woody. He made you a better football coach. He made you be a better, become a better football coach. He really did. You know, <laughs> we had to all band together as assistants to be stronger than him and as one guy. That's all. <laughs> but he made you become a better football coach. Coach Sable, the next coach you had the opportunity to work with at a, at a couple different stops was Tom Coughlin. Uh, when you look at Coach Coughlin and your time with him, what's something you picked up from him that was important to you? In some ways, this is going to be a little negative, but I think whenever you're in a football, let's say, program, you're you're in, you know, whatever it is, you're going to learn things. Some are positives and some are negatives. Tom was detail-oriented. He really wanted everything to be done exactly right. And, and that's good. But when I go to that now, as far as details goes, There'll be another guy we'll talk about probably in a second, Bill Belichick. Tom was not near as good as Bill when it comes to details. I mean, the things that really matter in a game. But the thing that from Tom, Tom was too unyielding. I mean, to the point of irritating the players and making them sometimes somewhat resentful. We had a thousand rules. And we'd, every road trip we ever went on, especially when we were in Jacksonville, I mean, there'd be six, eight guys who would get fined, you know, for wearing white socks, for not having a tie on. Uh, I mean, they were things that were, yeah, they're rules, but they were kind of nitpicky. And it was always that way. And I don't think in dealing in NFL wise with grown men, that you can do that because it becomes a source of irritation. You got to have rules. Every organization has to have rules, but you, you got to make them so that they're applicable. You know what I mean? They're not a source of harassment. If I'd say I learned anything from Tom, that was, it, it's a negative is what you don't want to do. And it was Tom's demise in the end. He alienated too many people over small things. When it comes down to uh, issues with players or management, you got to pick your fights. You know what I mean? You, you got to be wise about, you know, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. You know, find another way to solve that problem. Right. Well, you, you mentioned Coach Belichick, and you were able to spend a Super Bowl year with him, and you mentioned his detail. But, again, the, the biggest thing that sticks out to you that – was most helpful to you as a coach? I only was with him one year, and I learned more football in one year than I had learned in my entire 
rest of the time I was in the NFL. I mean, when it comes to handling players, designing practice, practicing the right way, game planning, I think you could take every aspect of an NFL football team, and he mastered it. He knew what to do, and he did the right things. The guy was was astounding to me. Uh, my, my, one of the examples I always give about him, now he's a real st- student of the game, okay, and a guy who studies film by himself, you know, to come up with the thoughts and the outlines of a game plan. Many times on the sideline in a game, and, and if you've ever been there, you've ever heard people say, watch this, watch that, in anticipation of some particular play, which probably never happens. But this guy, he came to us one time at the halftime of a game and said before the start of the half, this coming half, he said, you're going to see this, this, and this, so be ready for it. And he was exactly right. He didn't miss a heartbeat. I mean, he, he, he just knew the game so well. And as far as adjustments during a game, phenomenal. I mean, he knew how to handle everything. Now, the guy's been in football a long, long time, and he's seen plenty. You know, but he he came up the hard way. You know, he he was a guy that was just a gopher when he started out, and a and a and a geek breaking down film. You know, because Bill never played in the league. And he played very little football in college. He was a long snapper, but he was he's a true student of the game, and he knows about people and how to handle them. Like you know. Through all these years he's been with the Patriots, you never see an issue at least last a very long time with a player. If a guy's out of line, he gets rid of him, no matter who he is. Randy Moss was an ideal situation. You know, the guy was fine. As soon as he opened his mouth, about as if he was getting the ball enough, he was gone. Because Bill does not tolerate from any player, you know, to have any kind of issue in the locker room. Or you're, you know, you're a distraction and a source of a problem. He really believes wholeheartedly in that, you know, for a team to function, you can't have that. So, I mean, I could, I could go on. I could probably talk for hours about different things that I learned being around him. And I probably won't know near as much as some of those guys that were with him for a long time, like Dante Skarnacki. A whole bunch of guys, Romeo Cornell. I mean, they probably learned a lot more than I, but I picked up everything I possibly could, you know, when I was there for that time. Coach, in 2006 and seven, part of the Michigan Wolverines as the linebacker coach there, I, I was at the 2006 Michigan-Ohio State game, which I got to say is is one of the best live football games I've ever been at. An incredible game. Ohio State was number one. You guys were number two. And that thing was back and forth. And wow, like I said, what what a game. And I thought it was so well coached by, by both sides. But Lloyd Carr was the head coach in the College Football Hall of Fame now. When you think of Lloyd Carr, what were the things that impacted you? in serving on his staff? Well, Lloyd was was good with communication. I really had a lot of open communication with him, but I had known Lloyd from my time at Ohio State back in 79, 80, 81, when he was at Michigan. You know, and so we had been 
I don't want to say great friends, but we'd communicated with each other. You know, this was the exchange of ideas thing. So I, I had knew, known Lloyd for quite a long time. But Lloyd was, as a head coach, he gave you the latitude to do what you needed to do. He had complete confidence in guys, and he let them coach, which, you know, some some guys have a hard time with that, letting go of, well, you see it in the NFL more than anything with head coaches calling offensive plays. You know, they can't let go, and really they're not helping themselves because the best head coaches are CEOs, guys who, you know, know both sides of the ball and special teams, and they let those coordinators coach. Lloyd was really good in that game you uh, alluded to, I think we're going to get a replay this year. Yeah. Because it looks like both of them are going to end up 11-0, and be playing in Columbus again. That particular game was a heartbreaker because, boy, in the end of it, we had them on third down, and their quarterback scrambled, and Cravo hit the guy and knocked him out of bounds, and they called him for roughing. Um, it was an awful call. You know, because we'd have, we'd have gotten the ball back. They had not really stopped us. Well, we hadn't stopped them either, you know, for a team that led the nation in rush defense, which we did in 06. We played, a, you know, not as good a game as we wish we had. But they had good players. What they did, they did throw the ball well that day. It was certainly a good game, and I agree. We're probably going to see that here in, in another month or so again. But bring Coach Wiley back into this. We wanted to dig in a little bit with you, Coach, and and really get a perspective from a defensive coach. I mean, you've coached all three levels of the defense, defensive line, linebackers, defensive backs, but you're really thinking about uh, that, that front unit of the linebackers in line and, and some of the things you were looking for. So thinking about the breakdown of an opposing offensive line, right? When you're looking at that line, what do you look for to find a matchup you like or a weakness in their unit? What are the, some of those things, those indicators to you that say, say here's an area we need to attack or, or maybe even stay away from? Well, what I've always looked at when I've evaluated an offensive line is I'm trying to look at each guy and see what he can and cannot do. Okay, most, not most, but often a guy may have size, but isn't have very good feet. You know, he doesn't have the ability to recover or redirect. By redirect, I mean when they come off the ball, that they can get their feet in the ground and match the movement of a defensive lineman. You know, in pass pro, do they get top heavy? Are they are they soft? You know, I think when you really just look at them one at a time and try to evaluate, again, what I say in my mind, what they can and cannot do. Because almost all of them have some things that they labor with that they're not very good at, for lack of better words. And so it's when you find those things and you put it all together, like, it, you know, in the pass pro thing, when you evaluate the whole group, the offensive line, some of those guys aren't as good as other guys in pass pro. You know, and so the things you're going to look at is what kind of games you can run to take advantage of that. But if a guy is really poor, and I mean, especially soft, you may change, you know, the alignment of some of your players to take advantage of that. And you see that often now in the league. They'll take an edge guy and put him inside because he's got a better matchup in there. Or they'll take an inside guy like Donald from the Rams and play him outside on the edge. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Steve, but I can, I can attest to 
what he's saying is uh, we were playing the Green Bay Packers one year, and I had a, a left guard who was a rookie, and they put Reggie White on him. So <laughs> that's what Steve's talking about right there. Right. But, I, you know, to evaluate a line, it takes time. I mean, you got to look at, like, you know, at least two, three games and watch him play. You know, watch each guy on every play and see how he reacts with his body. I mean, the, the really, really good ones have agility, balance, really good feet, and they have they have the, the adequate mass. You know what I mean? They're 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 three hundred pound guys. You know, in today's game, it's hard to play with a smaller guy because the defensive linemen are are so big. I mean, the whole game is is you know, big people now is all over three hundred pounds. And so, like uh, a guy who twenty five years ago at two hundred seventy five pounds was considered adequate, no longer is. You got to look at those guys one at a time, and it takes time. It isn't something you do in an hour. It takes time, and if you're careful about it and you've done it thoroughly, then you can say with conviction what you believe is the strength and weakness of each of those guys, which will kind of tell you how you want to play them. Now, the run game is different. The run game to me is what kind of schemes they run and how are they tied to the formations. Because then you can anticipate some of the things and possibly even by alignment, help yourself against a, you know, their run scheme. So that's a little different. I mean, it, you don't quite get as much or try to get as much advantage in the run game by personnel as you do by scheme. Now, on the other side of the ball, I think offensively, if say, for instance, a defensive end is not a real physical guy that can't set the edge, an offense I can see taking advantage of going at the guy, possibly with gap schemes where they kick him out. I don't know how Bob feels about that, but I, I think the run scheme thing is a little different than pass. Yeah, we need, in the, in the run scheme stuff, when you look at how does the defensive line go three-by-one sets? How do they line by two-by-two two sets? Huh? How do they align when we put up two tight ends and we create the extra gap? How are they going to play the extra gap? Okay. Right. So we're trying to look for those little, you know, nowadays, you know, if the, the team's running the outside zone play and they've got the right guys trying to get on the three technique, well, if you've got a tight three technique, a lot of those guys in today's pro football are pretty good players and they can get on that guy's outside shoulder and in that, we call it a buckboard technique where you're going to take, you know, they use a buckboard technique coming off the ball, great penetration. You're going to combat that. The wider they put that guy, the tougher it is. You know, so they, they do stuff. Hey, this team's running the stretch play. We're not going to put the three technique on the guard. We're going to get them a little bit wider to make it as tough as they can on that guard to get out there and get that guy. And I think that's what Steve's alluding to. And now I was as an offensive guy, you're going to say, wow, how wide is that guy? We should be running the inside play instead of the outside play. Or if we're going to run the outside play, maybe we need to bring the tackle down and pull the guy and pin that guy, you know, where he is. So, you know, you play all those games. So those are all the little adjustments that I think Steve's alluding to in the run game is, hey, it is a scheme, and we're going to take advantage of the scheme by making it as tough as we can on those guys. And then as an offensive coach, you're going to say, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, we're trying to, we're pushing a tank up a hill, trying to get the right guard to block the three technique. That's almost a four-eye, okay, on the tackle. That's crazy. 
you, you stop playing those chess games in the, in the middle of the game that you're playing. Yeah, I think when you look at, you mentioned it, some of the formations, and obviously you could get some tips off of the formations, but looking at some of the, the things you had to face, Coach, what were the most difficult formations to work against? Well, Bob mentioned, I think one thing always comes to, you know, because we kind of evolved, and this now goes down way back into the the 60s and 70s and how it came about, but, you know, a long time ago, we were all 34 defenses where we two-gapped. But what we found out <laughs> is very difficult in college at that time to recruit guys that could two-gap. And so we evolved to uh, under defense. And what we did for the defensive linemen, instead of two-gapping them, we made them all one-gap players, which was easier to find guys to play that way. But you ended up playing a lot more under and even a little bit of over, but under was the big deal. So once we were in under, again, we, we one-gapped those, those down guys. And we ended up, we said, okay, the two-gap players now are going to be the linebackers who can do that because they're, they're off the line of scrimmage and they got a, an opportunity to read, you know, that the play's better. Now, your question to me was what, what, what formations? What was difficult? Well, because under required us to reduce one side of the front. When you came out in an eight-gap front that Bob talked about, how are you going to play the, the back side of it? Because you got a three technique and the next guy, where do you want to play him? You want to play him in a six eye on a tight end and risk, you know, them being able to run outside zone and get the ball outside of the edge of the defense. You're going to play him in a nine technique and now you got really a free gap, a C gap that a linebacker is going to have to play. You had to think that that was problematic for under defense. Okay. And then the employment of a wing, you know, a wing next to a tight end, which made the front longer. Uh, you can't do the old unbalanced line in the NFL, but you can create a stretch to one side with a, with a tight end wing because you're creating another gap. I'd say the eight gap front, the wing would be two of the things that would be bothersome in the run game. You know, and then again, if you want to go to schemes too, you I mean you get into a little bit in the personnel. People have been doing this for a long time, but obviously when you get the wildcat stuff with somebody playing quarterback other than a quarterback and the kind of formation they're in when they're in wildcat, you want to come up with stuff that you're going to make the guy be a passer. You're not going to let him run the ball. As soon as you see wildcat, you should be thinking, you know, eight-man fronts, different things that will really be strong against the run and force the guy to be a passer. What about the Bunch, Steve. Is that a problem? Um, pass? Yeah, we'll see the bunch. The bunch again if it's tight to the formation, okay? Because people bunch extended from the formation, but the bunch tight to the formation is kind of like the wing because you're dealing with more gaps. You've created more gaps by having that tight bunch on the split end side. Those are the things that are bothersome. I mean, how are you going to deal with them? Are you going to move your defensive front over, full man, or are you going to you're going to have to make some kind of adjustment in your secondary or linebackers, you know, to shift them over where they're in position? Because all run defense is based on gap responsibility, you know, and you got to have somebody responsible. 
And as I said, we've really, in modern defensive football, gotten away from two-gapping very much with down guys. I mean, there may be some people that are still doing it, but it's not. It's just not a real good, efficient way to play defense because you can't guarantee you're going to get 100% execution. It's hard. Going back to that bunch that, Steve, in your experience, you got the same, you're on the left half and you got the bunch to the right, okay? And and is it is it harder for you guys if the, on the backside, if that receiver is a an, an X and he's out there, you know what I mean? He's out by the numbers of place. Or is it harder if we put a tight end and attach him to the backside of the formation and just keep the bunch to one side and the tight end to the other side? You know, when people get into really tight formations, what you're saying, you got a bunch on one side and a and a regular tight end on the other side, to me that's an advantage to the defense because now you're playing in a box. We don't have to defend as much grass. When you got a split end on the backside, that's better because you you open up the field more. Now I don't know if you understand what I mean, but Yeah, more space. People, more space between the defense the less they like it. Right. That's why the spread offense, and, and the spread is is definitely grown into the NFL. The spread became such a great thing because it spread the defense out. It made you defend more grass. You know, you got to think way, way back when, you know, you start with the single wing. There was no width to it, okay? It was successful, but people caught up with it because you don't have to defend as much field. You know, and then people went to the split back veer, you know, and then there was the wishbone. But even in those offenses, they didn't spread people out, especially in the bone. I mean, so you had opportunities to scheme some things up on defense because you had less field to defend. I think that's an important aspect of defensive football. Understanding when an offense comes out in the formation, what exactly do you have to take away? I know that like sometimes go to a three-by-one set and and have nickel people in the game and the defense is playing us and under defense. And you've got no place to run the football. Now, in pro football, years ago, I'm not talking about what they do now. I'm talking about yeah. years ago. So if you go three-by-one and, and the defense just plays under, well, there's no place to run the football years ago, okay? <laughs> what are you going to do? The best day reducing it is to run the outside zone play. Right? Uh-huh. they got seven guys up there. you only got six blockers. So what are you going to run? Somebody's going to be free. So you let the backside defensive end free. You try to run the outside zone play. Well, now they got the RPOs. They got option plays. They got right. everything else. So they, so now they defense, well, we're going to get out of this. We got to, we got to put more people out. You know, now in pro football is, you know, everybody used to talk about on early downs playing eight man fronts because you, you know, you were getting heavy run, but they're, they're throwing the ball so much more now. And, Plus the fact of the RPO. I mean, you start, like, especially in cover four, you start taking defensive backs and telling them they have a primary gap responsibility, man. They are in a real quandary when you start with a run, you know, a run fake. Because if they go to their run responsibility, the RPO is wide open. I think offensive football, with the advent of the spread, with all of its trimmings, the RPOs and the zone reads and all that, Puts, has put a lot of stress on defense. And I think offense is ahead of defense right now. You know, defense has not come up with a 
what do I want to call it, a, a solution, you know, for all of it. It's just a lot. I think one of the things that the defensive guys are doing a little bit more now is running pressure defenses on early downs because what it does is it helps them in the run game and potentially at least cuts down the time factor, you know, for the quarterback on, let's say, an RPO to have a chance to read a bunch of stuff. And I, and I do believe this with defensive football, especially at the NFL level where the quarterbacks can really throw at football. Your way to beat the pass game isn't in coverage. It's in getting the quarterback. Like you're going to play a team that throws the ball 50 times a game. I think it'd behoove you on defense to study their protection schemes and figure out how you can get to the guy. That's going to help you a hell of a lot more than trying to play whatever coverage it is because these receivers are so good and the quarterbacks can throw the ball so well. If you don't get around the guy and disrupt the, the timing, you're in trouble. Now, Steve, when you when you do that, is somebody breaking down the amount of time the quarterback is released? You know, two point three well, seconds, two point two seconds. On, on, it depends on the routes they're running. You know what I mean? You get to look at the route combinations that they run. You know, the kind of stuff that let's say routes that are associated with the three step game, like slants, you know, and hitches, and things that look like that. I mean. When you get a lot of that stuff now, now it's difficult to get to the guy, even with pressure. But then what you got, you know, you got to do is, I think with those kind of guys, you got to roll the dice a little bit in the three-man rush, which I don't like doing because I've always hated that. Because three-man rush, it's hard to get around the guy. And, and, and these guys are so good that if you give them time, you can't play coverage well enough, long enough, you know, to stop them from getting the completion. Well, we get extra blockers when you three-man rush. I mean, if somebody, you know, you can yeah. theoretically, you can theoretically get two and a half double teams. You can double team the end of nose guard and the back of yeah. the on the other side. You get, you know, technically, you get three double teams. Now, if the, if you got really good defensive players that can beat the double teams, you know, you got to get a chance. Yeah, but it's again, you got to deal with what you got. You know what I mean? What you're playing with. Hell, if you got a bunch of super studs. I mean, you can do a lot of stuff, but most of us know in coaching that you have to assume most of the time you just got regular guys, you know, and you somehow got to get it done with them. We talked a little bit here about the advent of the spread and the RPOs and everything that goes along with that. And a game I recall from this past weekend, being here in Cleveland, watching the Browns, as I always do, uh, the Patriots run a stretch play to the right with a jet sweep coming back to the left and they're blocking out on the perimeter and you see the flow of the defense i mean those guys are reading their keys they're run fitting just like you said with the rpo that makes it so difficult and and now you're just left with three on three football on the outside with with really nobody free to get the back when when you're facing those kinds of teams who want a false key i mean is it like the rpo where the the best way to defend something like that is is to pressure it, to blitz it, and to take take reads out of it. I mean, they want you to read the keys, obviously, and take you the wrong way because your players are disciplined. So what's what's an approach there? We call those plays wrong way runs. That's what as an, on the offensive side of the ball. So we want to you know, we want to run a wrong way run. So it looks like eighteen, okay, or stretch, but we, we that's just to get the defense over there. 
you know. So that's the term that we use in a meeting room. Not that it means anything to anybody. But but your your statement's exactly right. The the way it's just like the spread guys in college running the read zone. I mean, they're great at it if you if you're going to sit there and play vanilla defense and and they have the opportunity to just like they're running the the play on barrels. All right. So defensively, what you got to do is you got to pressure them. You got to give them things that they don't have the time to execute what they're supposed to do. And that play that you're talking about, I mean, if you know that they have it, again, the hard thing is figuring out when, but that's, that's film study, knowing exactly what they run out of every formation by personnel grouping and when, so that when, if you have a pretty good idea when it's going to happen, I mean, you like to run double-edged pressure. You come from both sides off the edge. Okay, now I don't care what kind of false key they're giving. It isn't going to matter. You're, you're going to be in a pretty good defense. I, I just, you know, would only say when you play too much just straight vanilla defense, you're really asking for it. Because most of these guys on offense, they have a lot of answers and ways to handle all kinds of fronts as long as they're stationary and there's nobody pressuring, there's nothing special about who's doing what. And, you know, again, I think it behooves you on defense. You've you got to do something more than just be standing there. It's too easy for them. you got to make it hard. I know I know one thing, Steve, that um, on, in the run game, if you guys are running blitz stunts to twist, two-man games, three-man games, and you're running it against the in the one game on early downs. Those are tough to handle. You get a lot more zero plays or even negative plays, and you know when you guys well, again, when you're playing when you're playing vanilla defense on first down. And in the philosophy, say the philosophy of the offense is okay. We want to live in a world of third and four to six. If we can get in third and four to six, that's where we want to think that we can complete most of the third down plays the higher percentage that we can complete and get first down. So if we run the ball on first down and we only get two yards, they say, Scott, you only, you're not running the ball well. You only got two yards. Well, if we run it on second down and get two yards, now we're in the world of third and four to six. You know, if we get back to the line of scrimmage on first down and we don't get any yards, we get zero yards, but it's not a negative play. And then second down, we get four yards. We're back in the world of third and four to six. So somehow when the defense gets us on early downs is what makes it a lot tougher on the offense. I, I know that, but I don't, you know, I don't see a lot of TEs and ETs and TTs in three-man games on, in first-down football. But you can run, you know, different run stunts. You can involve backers. You know, I'm saying if you're like in a 34 front, bring one of the four backers as the fourth rusher but you stunt the front of, when you do it. You create something. You create movement. That's problematic. And you end up being not so bad because you're still dropping seven and you're playing a base coverage, but you got something going on up front. I think that's the thing you, you want to constantly do. You know, you don't want to be super predictable in the early downs where you got to make a decision defensively run pass. See, third down for a defense is a lot easier because it's more one-dimensional. The hardest part of defensive football is determining whether it's a run or pass because every player's responsibility changes 
between run and pass. So in those split seconds when the ball is snapped, making that decision, you know, that is really important and very difficult. That's why the play-action passes work so well on early downs. You're talking you know about I mean? the, the, the run-action passes. It's just really hard. Like, you've got to go by individual position on defense. Defensive linemen coming off the ball and playing the run, and then it turned into a play-action pass, and they have to convert to a pass rush off of what begins as a run fit. That's hard. It's hard for the linebackers who, when they read run in the beginning of the play, and start to move to their gap responsibilities, and then it becomes pass, and they got to get out of that and get into their coverage responsibility. That's the hard stuff. We tell the offensive line, make it look and sound like a run, because run plays sound a whole lot different than pass plays. Right. There's no noise. There's no noise in pass plays. If you, you listen, you know, from behind the defense, if you shut your eyes and just listen, and and they're throwing a five step drop. There's no noise. You know what I mean? There's 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 a lot of grunting, but there's no noise. But if we're running an inside zone play on first down or a lead play on first down, there's a lot of noise. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and not only has to look like the run, it has to sound like the run to the defensive guys. Do you, do you think that's a a, a, a a true statement? It could be, but one of the things I have to say that I never espoused, nor did I ever tell the players to be listening to the offensive talk, only because you're not focused on what you need to do. Well, I'm not talking you know about, the, talk. I'm not talking about is, the line calls. I'm talking yeah, about line calls. the collision is a lot different in the run game. There's a collision, there's noise in the run game. There's, there's a lot of noise from the collisions that are happening. In pass plays, there's not. You know, we, use oh, our hands. we get our hands on you. It's that's really kind that's, of silent. that's the nature of the beast, the nature of the plays, you know, as far as line play goes. You know what I mean? You aren't going to hear a lot on a pass, you know, because your guys, the offensive linemen are trying to get a good pass set based on their responsibilities. And the defensive guys are coming, they're flying off the ball, trying to get into whatever pass rush technique they want to try to use, or they've already pre-thought about what they're going to use. Yeah, they, may, they want to make us go someplace that we don't want to go. Well, Coach, you've certainly been gracious with your time here, and it was great to dig into some of these things. And to wrap it up, you've, you've had a tremendous career, over 40 years in the game. And looking back on your career, what's the best advice you can give a young coach wanting to reach his full potential in this profession? First off, be a student of the game. Learn as much as you can and ask as many questions as you can. Because if you don't ask, you can assume a lot of things that really aren't true. And secondly, coach as many positions as you can to understand the game. You know, like I felt very fortunate that I could coach D-line, linebackers, and the secondary, because I could understand the issues. And matter of fact, I even had a time, I had six years in my career where I coached quarterbacks and receivers, which I thought was great. And I was an offensive coordinator uh, when I did that. So, I mean, offensive game planning and what they have to deal with 
really helps you as a defensive coach because you get a little bit of understanding of what they're going through and what their thought process is. And I think it helps you as a coach to coach multiple positions so you really get the feel of how everything fits together. At least I'm talking about defensively. It's so helpful. And I think that young coaches, when given the opportunity to coach anything, even special teams, to you know, have a, some partial responsibility is good for you. I mean, there's a lot to understand about the game. And until you get involved with coaching a position, I don't think you truly understand what's involved. Then you start to understand the problems. What was helpful to me, Steve, when I was at the Bengals, Dick Rabo was the defensive coordinator. Okay, so in the offseason, okay, when I had time and the defense was meeting, I would go sit in their meetings. You know, I'd ask Dick, is okay if I sit in here? And he'd go, yeah, not a problem, Bob. You know what I mean? And just listen to him talk and listen to them discuss defense against offense. And that was very helpful to me also. I think that's really true. But again, that to me goes along with continuing education part of it, of you seeking out information as much as you can. It isn't going to come to you. You know what I mean? You're going to have to go seek it. For young coaches, I'm thinking about a guy in high school where there isn't the time nor the structure like there is in college or the NFL. Just try to get involved in as many different things as you can because you get to learn the basics. And that, and that really helps in your overall understanding of the game. It's a fabulous game. But to the regular fan, they don't understand. It's much more complex than meets the eye. And that goes with fundamental techniques as well as the X and O's. Coach Sabo, this has been a, a great hour with you, learning some ball from you, hearing your perspective that you've learned over this game and everything you've done. So we certainly appreciate the time that you spent with us here today. It's like I said, always fun to talk about ball and to recall you know, some of the things uh, that you witnessed. Steve, it's always a pleasure for me to talk to you, period. Number one, oh, hey, we, and not we, only we, about football, but we talk about life in general too. which is not yeah. football all the time, okay? Yeah. And over the years, I've learned so much from our conversations that we have, just by itself. That I, I really uh, like to thank you for all the help that you've given me through the course of my career, yeah. and and the people out there. I, I and Steve's a, a wonderful football coach. He's really good at what he does. He's really helpful. He's willing to share information. You know, with all that said, he's actually a better person than he is a football coach. But, you know, our our friendship goes way beyond football. You know, and again, I know that this program is basically for football, so we don't need to get into a great discussion about the things you and I have shared through the years that are personal. But Yeah, like the golf Believe me, you know, (laughs) in, in football, coaches, we have a lot of, might I call them associates or people, you know, that we know, but we don't have that many true friends. Bob's a true friend. It isn't just football. It's life, you know, and uh, again, good, good friends are hard to come by. They really are. I mean, people you can count on and you know that they're always in your corner in all the aspects of life. So anyway, it's been really enjoyable for me kick to talk about football but good to you know visit with bob in this program thank you for listening to the mushroom society series on the coaching coordinator podcast 
be sure to check out the cool clinic and all the great talks from this past year and the year before and we're adding some great new content for example this week we added howard mudd and paul boudreau some historical content from past cool clinic check that out at coachtube.com cool clinic follow the cool clinic on twitter at the cool clinic and follow me on twitter at coach k grabowski